Our scripture this morning is from Nehemiah's second chapter. And this is what it says. In the month of Nisans, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been set in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my, my face not look so sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, It pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of king's forests, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors, governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave, the, gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounds with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The official did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come. 
Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. When the Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, and as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is God's words. Thanks to be God. Thanks, Eric, as always. I don't know how many of you were actually doing what you envisioned you would be doing when you were just a little kid. Uh, those of you who maybe are say, God, okay, here we go. Are you doing what you thought you would be doing when you were just a little kid? Uh, or, or even if you, you may not have had a notion of what that might be. And there's a certain luxury that comes along with living in our particular context. You know, people talk about kind of your calling, what it is you've been called to do. And in an ideal world, you can combine the elements of calling. Do you have a desire to do something? Do you have the ability to do it? And do you have the opportunity in front of you? You might, for example, desire to be an NBA basketball player, but the ability is somewhat lacking since you have a two-inch vertical leap and you can't make a basket at all. So you can try, but it's not going to work. Uh, but maybe you do, though, have the desire and the ability, but you just don't have the opportunity. Uh, perhaps you're born in a place where you just have no access to the things that get you to the point where you can actually develop those skills. And that's a great luxury to have, but it's not the luxury that Nehemiah had. Nehemiah was born as an exile in a foreign country, and he was a slave. He was a slave to the king, the person who was exercising rule over his group of people, and he didn't have the luxury of saying, what's my desire, my ability, and my opportunity. In fact, opportunity came a-knocking when the king said, you're going to be doing this for me. And that's what we find in Nehemiah chapter 1. If we were to turn back and two weeks ago, we looked at the context of this book that we've just begun going through. And you know that in 586 following about 150 years later from the northern tribes, the southern tribes are carted off to exile in Bab Babylon and the Persian kingdom. And all of these people are growing up in exile then when we open up the book of Nehemiah. It's, it's a group of people who have 
never seen their homeland, at least somebody like him. And as he grew up in that culture, and they said, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, he was selected to be the cupbearer. That was the last sentence in chapter 1. I was cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer was somebody who, if you recall, had a significant job because he was actually given access to the most powerful person, but it was a dangerous job also. Because his job description was sip wine and die if there's poison in it. That's basically what happened. So he had a very risky job, not that he had a choice, but he did it. And he did it, he did it well. And, and he earned a certain measure of favor by virtue of the fact that he was selected to be in that job and that he was doing it faithfully. But he gets word, again in chapter 1, from people, some, some relatives of his who had gone and made the journey, uh, the, the hundreds of miles journey to his hometown. And they come back and report that during the days of Ezra, which happened before this time, just a little bit in the rearview mirror, Ezra had gone and led an effort to rebuild the temple, the, the most holy place. And, and some success had been had, but it was brought to an end. And still, the walls of Jerusalem itself and the walls around the temple were in shambles. And nobody had taken up the work. Ezra did a great thing. It started, but then it came to an end. And this, when the word comes back, rips his heart in two. He's, he's upset that people haven't finished what was started and that his country lies in ruins. But what can he do about it? He's a slave. He's never seen the place. He doesn't have necessarily the skill set necessary, who knows, to do this. All he's been trained in, as far as we know, is whatever the king wants him to do, which apparently is drinking wine. How many of us feel like we could sign up for that job? You've got the right skill set. I remember going over to teach English as a second language, and they said, can you speak English? Yes, you're qualified. That's awesome. That's fantastic. How easy is that? Do you drink? Yeah, you're in, because I want you to be in. He didn't know what was going to happen next. What control does he have? over the Persian king who rules over his people and is hanging out in Susa in chapter 1, a place that was the resort place for kings, lavish, living lifestyles of the rich and famous. If it had been shot back then, it would be exploring Artaxerxes. What really can he do? Now, if you remember in chapter 1, as he is really wrestling with what he's heard his heart is not just torn asunder because he wants to rebuild, but he starts thinking about the sins that his fathers had done, the transgressions of the past. And we talked about corporate uh, repentance, not just for my individual sins, but for the sins of, of my nation and generational too. And we had question and answer time afterwards. And I thought a little bit more about what I thought was a... a, a kind of halfway thought through reply on my part, trying to unpack that a bit. So just to kind of go back to feel like I've had a little bit more time to think about this, when he's talking about confessing sins of people, not just his own, but his people, and also even of his predecessors. This is what seems to be in mind, and I would say to you, if you're taking a, a, an opportunity to say, what does it look like for me to confess sins beyond the scope of just me? 
what seems to be taught here is that first of all, first off, you acknowledge that the sins even existed. Sins before your time, but also sins right now that exist not just with you, but your family and your nation. And then you take time to lament the sins. When you see those and you confess them, you're sad about it. Don't dismiss it and just brush it off. There's a whole book called Lamentations. It's all about being sad. And that's a dangerous thing to do in some cultures, especially in this one, because he's not supposed to be sad before the king. You pretend that everything is okay. The king just wants happy, happy, happy all the time. And so everybody puts on the happy face, the Sunday church face, and smiles and says, everything's okay inside, you're torn apart. But he is so distraught. And not only the sins of the past is national sins, but the state of how things are, he's, he can't contain it any longer. And he's lamenting those. And then... He confesses them also in such a way that he says, I'm not going to repeat this. Endeavor not to repeat those sins. Acknowledge them, lament them, and then walk in a new direction. He's, he's talking about forsaking those evil ways in chapter 1 as well. And you'll notice that the acronym is AIL, what ails you. So if you think about it, you know, whatever. And it's interesting, too, because... There is, interestingly enough, in scriptures, and I don't understand all this, a connection between confession and healing. And that, that's in the book of James, too. Confess your sins to each other, that you may be healed. There's some, some way in which confession and healing are intermingled with each other. So if those sins ail you, confess them. That you may be healed. So that's just looking at chapter 1. Now, let's look at chapter 2 and think about it as we lift from the text in terms of sections, what we see thematically from Nehemiah, God's word to us, living and active, that has, has some themes that, that we can pull out of the text that the author seems to be asking us to look at and examine. Nehemiah is being called to do a new work. And so we called this establishing the work of our hands. You know, Nehemiah, again, not, he's like, I'm just going to be faithful, but this isn't what I really want to do. And he's beginning to pray in chapter 1 all the time. He weeps, he fasts, he prays regularly. And four months later, after he's been praying regularly, he gets this opportunity in verses 1 through 5, coming before the king, he's sad in his presence, He's afraid because he can't contain his emotions any longer. And he doesn't know how the king's going to respond. It could be off with your head or you're done with the cupbearer thing. Now go out there and start moving rocks. Who knows what it is. But he's been praying and cultivating. And then this moment arrives. And he says to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king says, well, what do you want? And in that moment, in verse 4, he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, this isn't a long, lengthy sort of prayer. This is like an instantaneous shooting it up, like, oh, man, here it is. God, please give me strength. There's prayers like this all throughout Scripture. You know, come Lord Jesus <laughs> type things, too. 
Oh, Lord, God, son, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, this is, this is an arrow prayer shot up to heaven. But it's not done just randomly. He's been cultivating a prayer life. He's been doing this for four months. I mean, and even longer as well. But he does pray in response. And this king, he's afraid because the king has real power. That king can do whatever he wants. Just one word, snap of the fingers, bling. It's done. And yet Nehemiah is trusting in this phrase here, in the God of heaven. I prayed not just to God, but to the God of heaven. The God who spoke everything into being, just with a word, created the heavens and the earth. And you know what? If that's the God I'm praying to, do you think he can do anything he wants to do? I mean, this king, if it pleases you, king, but that's kind of a lowercase k because he's talking to the king, uppercase k, of heaven and earth. And so he's praying to the God of heaven who knit Artaxerxes together in his mother's womb, regardless of how much power he has, and he's going to pray to the one who can actually move heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, puts it this way. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. He can direct the hearts of the most powerful people on earth as he pleases. Just like you can go out and dig a little trench and make water go a certain way, put some rocks. That's the image of what the God of heaven can do in the hearts of men. Anybody. The most powerful person with the opportunity to push a button and start a nuclear war is in the heart. His hand is in the hearts of the God of heaven. He can direct it however he wants. If you believe that, it should affect and inform your prayers. This is the God of heaven. I'm going to pray to him. There's no guarantee. There's some wonderful phraseology in, in some Old Testament scriptures that say, I trust in God, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he can deliver me from, from this fire. But if he doesn't, he's still the God of heaven and earth. I know he can. If it pleases him, he will. And that's the kind of confidence that has been cultivated in Nehemiah's heart. The same thing happens with Pharaoh, the other guy who was in charge back in the day of Moses as well. Elijah, he was a man like us. He prayed about the weather. Yeah, people in the Bible pray about the weather. Now, if you want it to rain and I don't want it to, we'll see what happens. It's kind of like the same thing between, you know, north and south or the Reds and the Cubs or whatever the case may be. But God does want to hear those prayers. There are 14 prayers in this book, depending on how you count. And you learn, I would say, to pray by praying. That's how you learn to do it. I mean, it doesn't, you can shoot up those prayers, but the depth and the richness of prayer comes in the very act of doing it itself. And I would suggest as well that the best way to pray is to pray in community. I mean, it's good to pray alone. We've talked about Jesus has said, go into your secret place. That needs to happen. You remember when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount? He says, go into your secret place and, and, and don't announce it to people that you're praying. And then he gives a model prayer that's corporate, our Father in heaven. So it's, it's kind of a both and scenario. 
And if you think about these 14 prayers, they're ones that anyone who has a Bible can read. You can read about them today. And so can somebody who lives in China or in India or in Germany or in Bolivia. They can open it up and read it. It's there for all time to shape your own prayers. So when you read a prayer in the Bible, actually, though it may seem personal, it's, it's kind of a corporate prayer. It's been codified, delivered, and given to you. You're praying the very words of somebody like Nehemiah. And that is done, in a sense, in sort of a cosmic community, but we do it in a smaller way in our own settings as well. Some of you know G Eugene Peterson. He, he died a few years ago, but he was a, a pastor. I almost went to the seminary where he was a professor just because I enjoy his perspective so much, but it was way too expensive. And uh, at the beginning, the beginning of the contemplative pastor, he writes a little bit about learning to pray in community. He says, if somebody comes to me and says, teach me how to pray, I say, be at this church at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's where you learn how to pray. Of course, prayer is continued and has alternate forms when you're by yourself, but the American experience has the order reversed. In the long history of Christian spirituality, community prayer is most important than individual prayer. One thing we learn in community prayer is to be led in prayer. What happens if I go to church? I sit there and somebody stands before me Eric, and says, let's pray. I didn't start it. I'm responding. The worshiping congregation, hearing the word read and preached and celebrating the sacraments is the place where I learn how to pray and where I practice prayer. It's a center from which I pray. From it, I go to my closet or to the mountains and continue to pray. A second thing about praying in community is that when I pray in a congregation, my feelings are not taken into account. Nobody asks me when I enter, how do you feel today? What do you feel like praying about? So the congregation is a place where I'm gradually learning that prayer is not conditioned or authenticated by my feelings. That's virtually impossible to learn by yourself. But if I'm in a congregation, I learn over and over again that prayer will go on whether I feel like it or not, or even if I sleep through the whole thing. That's the reason I like this guy. Those kind of, you can sleep through the whole thing, people are still praying. You fall asleep when you're alone, it's done. That's why I would even encourage you something like tonight when you have an opportunity to pray with others who are focused on praying for you. That, that is precious time to hear the cadence, the observations, the rhythms, the insights that come from somebody not yourself. God's people gathered together, putting you in the center saying, let's lift you up to the God of heaven. Sign up. Learn how to pray. It's not just being prayed for. It's learning how to pray in the very act of doing that as well. And then we see that in verses 6 through 18, and I'm not going to read this entire section. It's a lengthy section of Scripture, I know. But not only does, do we see him praying, he's, he's got a plan. He, he's been thinking about this for a little while. And so praying and planning are not in competition with each other. They're complementary. He's been doing both. He's been thinking, what if there's a scenario that seems impossible to imagine where the king actually says, what would you like me to do about it? He's in a position where he can do something. What do I do then? I mean, this is his opportunity. So when it opens up 
and it's finally in front of him, now what? If the king says, all right, you're sad. What can be done about it? Let me talk to the queen over here too. And if Nehemiah said, I just haven't really given it that much thought about what we would do next. The king might say, oh, opportunity is gone. See you later. I'm going to be in a bad mood next time I see you when I'm sad. And the answer will be different. So he has been thinking this through. You know, when, when in the book of Ruth, there's that great, great phrase, but God, you know, but God, all throughout. Like, but God has been doing something. Like, she's in, she's in, a, in a foreign country as well, coming back with, with no rights, uh, very, very few rights in the culture of that day as a widow. She was at the bottom of the rung. But God, but God put her in just the right place at the right time. But God had moved in Boaz's heart. But God did all this stuff. And from that lineage, we have Christ himself. And, and so when you think about this planning thing with praying, it's almost like then one day. You know, then, then one day the king says, okay, now's the shot. You've been praying, you've been waiting, and by the way, praying and waiting always go hand in hand. I mean, sometimes there's instant responses, but typically, if you read the whole of Scripture, praying and waiting go hand in hand. Four months he's been praying. Some of you feel like you've been praying four years for something, 40 years, 80 years. Praying and waiting and praying and waiting. But he's been planning, and... So when the king opens up the opportunity, he gives two requests. The first is for letters to ensure his safe passage back to Jerusalem. And the second is for lumber to rebuild the gates by the temple and the gates of the city wall and build his own house. He says, I got to have a place to live because he starts talking about how long it's going to take. It's about a four-month journey to get there. It's going to be four months to come back. So that's at least eight months. How long is it going to take to do this? It ends up taking 12 years, by the way. But he's got to have a place to stay if all this is going to happen. And he's been thinking about it. And we talked about another proverb. Here's, here's another proverb for you. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. You're planning Committed to the Lord. And I, I would suggest that those two have an interaction with each other as well. You don't just plan without praying. And praying is committing it to the Lord. But you don't just commit it to the Lord without planning. That, that would be true for anything. Even, even as a church body. When, when we, you have a vision for a church, you don't just say, okay, well, here goes. And you have a vision and a mission. And you're intentional about that. And then if the Lord doesn't build the house, it's not going to work. I'm committing to him these plans that he's given, and they're coming together. And your plan may alter along the way. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. If you've been walking with the Lord for a little while, <laughs> you've got this plan, and it's changing along the way, too. There's something dynamic about it because you've committed it to the Lord, and so you're following his lead. It's interesting to see the different responses between Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra had a similar experience where uh, under some different leadership, he was returning to Jerusalem, and, and there was some offer for him to, to do certain things, but he had a very, very different reply. Here, here's what Raymond Brown says about this. There is nothing monochrome about God's servants. Thirteen years earlier, Ezra had refused the offer of Persian soldiers to accompany his people on their way back to Judah, believing the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. So, I mean, Ezra, he said, hey, look, can we send some troops back with you? He's like, I'm trusting in God. 
Uh, those troops would just be in evidence that I'm not trusting in God. God's hand is on me. Here's the proof. But Nehemiah maintained that because the gracious hand of God was upon him, the king granted his request for protection. So the king says, hey, you want some troops and everything? He's like, yeah, that would be awesome. That's evidence of God's gracious hand on me. One man's commitment to God precluded the escort. The other welcomed it. Ezra regarded soldiers as a lack of confidence in God's power. Nehemiah viewed them as evidence of God's superlative goodness. We must not rigidly stereotype believers into patterns of spirituality. This is one of the dangers when you have something like the book of Nehemiah. You say, look at Nehemiah, be Nehemiah. Yeah. And that, there are some great examples there too, but guess what? You're not Nehemiah, and I'm not Nehemiah. It's the same God. Our context is different, and frankly, my skill set is different than Nehemiah's, and it's different than yours. There's a certain measure of freedom that comes in recognizing I don't have to be you, and you don't have to be me. Thank goodness that's not the case. Or as we all know, we would still be back in the Stone Age, rolling rocks and trying to create a vehicle out of it. I'm glad you're not me. And perhaps the same is true in reverse as well, because God has gifted us each uniquely, and there's a context here, a different time. I don't know all, all that was happening in their minds, but it's, it's a challenge when you say, be just like Nehemiah, because, well, what about be just like Ezra? They had two different responses to it as well. This is happening in a certain context with a certain person, and we can be encouraged because what we do know is that they both prayed and they both planned. And as we'll see later, they both trusted God. The substance behind their actions is the same, but they looked a little bit different. It's kind of like this in Proverbs 16, 9. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. They both had planned to return, but the way that looked was different. And isn't this a verse that those of us who have some years behind us can attest to? I'm planning my course, and that's good. But you have to hold a little bit loosely to those plans because God himself, the God of heaven, is in charge of what happens next. And that's okay. Those plans may come about. You're committing your way to him. But even if there's a change along the way, he himself has not changed. Maybe your plans need to. And then we have resolve, I would say, in verses 17 to 19. Uh, he says to them, as he goes back, he is surveyed. He's, his plan includes looking at things and trying to think about the gate situation. He's developing some more ideas in his head, a combination of an engineer and, uh, and a prophet of sorts who can rally people and inspire them. He's uniquely gifted for that time. Got quite a bit of work to do. And he says to them, you see the trouble we are in in verse 17. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And what, a, what a great speech is that. Look around. Everything is completely in ruins and destitute. Let's rebuild it. And it is kind of exciting, except for you're starting with looking at how, how difficult things are to overcome. But somehow... Obviously, as he's done this and, and calculated and delivered it, they respond favorably to it. This, this speech, as he goes on to talk about the gracious hand of his God upon him, what the king said to him, he's kind of building them up, uh, getting excited for the battle that's ahead of them. This is just right before the big game. Let's start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. He's rallied them to it. And, but it's just a beginning point, right? There's, 
There's rubble in front of them. And there's a recent history, about 12 years ago, of things completely coming to an end. How are they going to push through when things get difficult? And it doesn't take very long. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, these officials, they mock and ridicule them. You know, they, they maybe start doing some work, and they're like, you guys, don't you remember your, your moms and your dads tried it, and they failed just like you. You know, this whole thing is sus. It's not going to work. It's not, forget about it. You guys are losers. Just like your parents, just like, oh, let's, let's remember the story of you exiles. And they just start, they're smack talking. And they're going to be really good at it along the way. We'll talk more about that issue of perseverance, but they resolve from the beginning. He knows, he's, he's surveyed it. He knows what they're up against. It's going to take some resolve. Some of you know Jonathan Edwards. I'm sure you recognize that name if you grew up in the United States. Uh, you read it in English literature and, and aware of him in the 1700s and uh, a, a man who was used by God to start uh, one of the people he used for the first great awakening, uh, just a spiritual wildfire across the United States of people recommitting to the things of God and holding in esteem his word and confessing their sins very quickly. And some of that came from his influence. When he was just a teenager, he wrote 70 resolutions. He said resolved. And he wrote 70 different things that he was going to resolve to do. Here's the first of those. Resolved. To do whatever I understand to be my duty and will provide the most good and benefit to mankind in general. Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I encounter, and no matter how many I experience or how severe they may be. This is a teenager saying this. This is what I resolve to do. I am going to do the duty that God has put in front of me, no matter how hard it is. That kind of resolve seems to be what Nehemiah is saying to these people as well. Things are a ruin. We're going to make it better. And no matter what comes in the way, we're going we're to persevere to the end. And automatically people kind of come and start whispering, you'll never get it done. And he has resolved, because God has called him to do this, that we will complete the task. He goes on, Jonathan Edwards does, to say, resolved, if ever, really, whenever I fail and fall, and or grow weary and dull. Whenever I begin to neglect the keeping of any part of these resolutions, I will repent of everything I can remember that I have violated or neglected as soon as I come to my senses again. See, I'm out of my mind for a little while, and I've lost heart, but I resolve that I will repent and start in that same direction again. And again, I, I think an interesting one that he wrote too is, uh, one of them is to never do anything out of revenge, short and simple. Resolve to never do anything out of revenge. He was a teenager. Do you think if he had Snapchat, TikTok, and Instagram, that might have some information to him about the way he uses that device? If he resolved never to do anything out of revenge? Well, obviously he didn't have it. And neither did Nehemiah. But he had the same God, 
And he's rallying these people to this cause as he's prayed and he's planned and he's resolved for all of this. And then finally, the element that is all throughout this is trust in verse 20. I prayed, he says, to the God of heaven. And the God of heaven will give us success, verse 20. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, he tells these other people, you don't have any share in that. Because you're not trusting in the same God that we are trusting in. This is all throughout the text. In verse 4, he says, I prayed to the God of heaven. Remember, we talked about that. Verse 8, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Verse 11, what God had put in my heart. Verse 18, the gracious hand of my God upon me. And then in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. It's actually bookended by this idea that the God of heaven is in control of all this stuff. And so for Nehemiah, just like for you and me, although it may be different, the call is to trust in the God of heaven. And that's what you're doing when you pray and when you plan and even when you make these resolutions. Another proverb, since we've been looking at the Proverbs, there's lots that the Proverbs have to say that are relevant, not only to Nehemiah, but to us as well. This is maybe one that you memorized if you grew up in the church and that perhaps you've put aside, but we need to pull back out again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Isn't that a wonderful verse? You're trusting God in all of your ways, despite what may look like an impossible task in front of you. I mean, Nehemiah, I don't know what training he had, but he's kind of way beyond his skill set, it seems. He's never done this kind of thing before, rally a group of people to rebuild something. What's he going to do? He's going to trust in God. And he's going to believe that God will make the path straight, whatever may come next. Now, what's interesting to me is if I think through all this, and Nehemiah was a great man, but there's somebody who was even greater, the one who was to come as well, who did all of these things. If you think about Christ, and we already heard it teed up the greatest Sunday of all as he conquered death. You know, when you look at the life of Christ, what are one, what's one of the themes of his life? Prayer. He, he prays, he goes off, he spends time with his father, but then he comes together and he prays with his disciples. Both of those things are happening. And guess what? He is planning this thing that happens on the cross. It's not a surprise. They've been planning from all eternity in, in, the, in the, the amazing, mysterious will of God. They have planned from all eternity that he should go to the cross. And do you think that was easy for him to do? I mean, there in the garden, when he knows it's coming, he says, if there's any other way, he's tempted by Satan, even his own disciples. You can let go of the cross. But he knew what the plan of God was, and he prayed to God, said, help me to fulfill it. Resolve. He was resolved. He set his eyes like flint, and he was going to look for what God called him to do and let nothing deter him. And then on the cross, what about trusting in God? When these people, who are the very people he's dying for, hurl insults and mock him as well. What are the first words we hear from his lips? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea the cosmic significance that they're throwing rocks at the very person who knit them together in their mother's womb. Father, forgive them. That's the ultimate trust. He, he breathes his last and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
So Nehemiah, great. We can look at some things thematically from it too, but he's just a shadow of the substance to come in the person of Christ. So you don't have to be Nehemiah because Christ fulfilled it all perfectly. You can be who God's made you to be in the freedom of exploring what that is, in the context of community, which is why when we do stories of grace in a moment, by the way, I enjoy this time. I cherish and look forward to when we put that in the bulletin, stories of grace. Because this is evidence of how God's been at work in, through, and around us in a way that I can't see otherwise. When we look at the book of Nehemiah and hopefully draw resolve and, and, and strength and, and planning and, and praying and, and trusting, but this isn't done by himself either. He's going to gather people around him. And I'm grateful for this word of God. Look forward to hopefully unpacking more uh, of the wisdom of God in the weeks ahead. But for today, let us then use this as a launching pad to see the way that God has been at work in space and time, even in the context of our own setting beyond Nehemiah itself. Father, for a moment, we do say thank you for this text. We ask humbly that it would move us to respond appropriately, uh, praying, planning, resolving, certainly trusting more in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.